0: My name is Josh Walters, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you. If you're joining us online or in one of the venues at an off-site campus, wherever you may be, we are excited that you chose to be here to worship with us today as we wrap up 2019, the last weekend of the year. How many of you are excited about that? That's right. For some of you, you're like, praise God, this year's over. We're heading to a new place, right? I heard Pastor Josh say yesterday: it's not just the last weekend of the year, it's the last weekend of the decade. I was like, wow, that's a cool thought, wrapping up a decade. How often does that happen, right? And I realized, like, once every 10 years is how often (laughs) that happens. But still, it's a special, special week. I want to take just a minute as we get started today to celebrate Christmas. We had one of the biggest Christmases we've ever had here at Seacoast. Just over 23,000 people (laughs) joined us to hear a message of hope. That's right. I loved watching here in Mount Pleasant at the end of the service. Pastor Josh presented the gospel, gave people the opportunity to respond and hands went up all over the worship center. So many people found new life in Christ. I can't imagine a better way to kick off a new year than that. And I had so many conversations with you about, hey, I invited my neighbor, my my brother, my sister came, coworkers came, people who are close to you and maybe far from God found him on Christmas Eve. So, so proud of you for investing in those relationships. So proud of you for inviting them and to God be the glory for moving in a mighty way. It's always fun when you bring a friend, people will walk up and be like, hey, I brought my neighbor don't screw it up. You know, I hear you. I understand. You know, so just so excited and thankful for all God did. And you are in for a treat today. Lynn Stroy is going to be bringing the word for us. And she's been on staff at Seacoast for just over seven and a half years. She started off at our Irmo campus. And about four and a half years ago, I was looking for an executive assistant. and We had been through three rounds of interviews and had met a bunch of amazing candidates, but I just didn't have any peace in my heart about who the person was. So we were about to close the process again. And as I was praying through it, felt like God said, Lynn, and I knew Lynn from all staff, but I didn't really know Lynn or have a relationship with her. And so she came down for all staff one month and Katie and I asked her to go out to coffee at Starbucks. And I just kind of shared what the Lord had said and asked her to consider moving down here. To work with me. And I'm telling you for the last four and a half years, it's been largely behind the scenes, but she drives and runs all of the logistics of the Mount Pleasant campus. And so many of the ministries of Seacoast, I joke often to say that she is my boss, but for any of you who have a strong woman in your life that has her stuff together, you know what I'm talking about. She just helps make me a couple of the women said, that's right. Amen to that. Right. <laughs> But she, uh, she makes me a better leader, and I'm just so, so thankful for her and excited about today because so much of the stuff that she has done so faithfully behind the scenes to help sharpen my messages and me to help make them better, you're going to get to see here on the stage. So why don't you join me in giving Lynn a big, rowdy round of applause. Let her know we're excited to hear from her.
1: Good morning, Seacoast, thank you, thank you. And like Josh said, I started at the Irmo campus. 10 years ago, I walked through the doors at the Irmo campus, I had lost my brother. Um, I was a paralegal at the time and life just felt hopeless Whereas as before I thought on paper everything looked good, there was just a darkness in me. And I can't begin to even start my message or share what God's been doing in my life without saying thank you to a few people. And for Pastor Greg and Debbie, who had a dream that God planted in their heart and who started Seacoast, without them I wouldn't be standing here today. I walked through those doors and gave my life to the Lord at the Irmo campus and I have never been the same since. And I know that that is the same story for thousands of you across all the campuses, that that Pastor Greg and Debbie's obedience has led to life change for you. And for Pastor Josh, Surratt, and Lisa, for you to entrust me with this platform this weekend, I know that that is no small thing. I don't take it lightly. And guys, I cannot tell you this was my church before it was my job. But when it became my job and I got to see my leaders up close and personal, to see that they're open handed, that they call out gifts and talents in their team, it is incredible to see a leader step back and to raise someone else up. It is the real deal. And so thank you for that. And for Josh and Katie Walters, like he said, I would never be here if they had not been obedient to God if they had not listened to his voice, and I have watched them for years up close and personal, and I have learned how to seek the Lord by watching them seek the Lord. And so I just wanna thank you guys for giving me this opportunity, it's incredible. Like you said, I was born and raised in Columbia, and just this weekend I was in Columbia with my friends having a girls weekend, and yesterday I drove back. And as I was driving back, I realized that I am a pretty efficient driver. Do any of you feel like you're an efficient driver? I'm an efficient driver, but occasionally while I'm driving, I get stuck or trapped behind someone who's driving less efficiently than me. You're laughing because you know the feeling. And so I quickly get around this person to speed up and keep going on with my day. But how many of you have ever gotten around a less efficient driver sped up only to get stopped at a stoplight just a couple of feet later? and the slow driver creeps up next to you and stops. And you don't look at them. I don't look at them, why? Because I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, I know, I know, I hurried up just to wait. Have any of you ever been there with driving or anything else in your life? Have you ever hurried up just to wait? It's frustrating, it drives me crazy. And why? Because I don't like to wait, and why should I? Our culture is designed to help us avoid waiting. It reinforces how I feel about waiting. Think about drive-throughs. The entire premise behind a drive-through is if you're going to have to wait, do it on your own terms. You can sit down in an environment controlled by you, you can listen to the music you want, at the temperature you want, and as soon as you get your food, you can keep on going. Drive-throughs are designed to say if you have to wait, wait how you want to wait. And what about coffee? The only thing better than coffee is coffee that somebody else made for me. And the only thing better than coffee that somebody else made for me is coffee that somebody else made for me that I don't have to wait for. Thank you, Starbucks, for your mobile app because I can order my coffee at home, and then when I get there, I don't even have to go through the drive-through with everybody else in North Mount Pleasant. I can just walk in, grab my coffee, and walk right back out. There is nothing better than that. And so businesses have learned how to leverage how we feel about waiting for their profit. And that's great, right? We call that good customer service. And we hate waiting. And these, all of these things are for convenience. And convenience is fine, it can create margin in your lives to devote more time to better things, but that's not why I choose convenience, and I would wager to bet that that's not why you choose convenience either. You choose convenience because you hate to wait. We think that waiting is a bad thing, and we teach it to our children at an early age. How many of you are familiar with Dr. Seuss? And how many of you are familiar with the book, Oh, The Places We Go, or You Go? Oh, The Places You Go. If you've ever graduated from anything or given someone a graduation present, you've probably come across this book. Well, let's see what Dr. Seuss has to say about waiting. You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long, wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, toward a most useless place, the waiting place. If you're taking notes or you have an outline, I want you to look at that outline, look at that passage, and I want you to underline the word fear. And then I want you to underline the word useless. Headed, I fear, toward a most useless place. Before we ever know the name of this place, Dr. Seuss tells us how we're supposed to feel about it and what its value is. Headed, I fear, toward a most useless place, the waiting place for people just waiting. And he goes on to tell us all the different things that people could be waiting for. And what you should take notice of is when we get to the page where you start saying out loud to your kids all the different things they could be waiting, waiting for, you have an image of what waiting looks like. And what is that image? Long, never-ending, boring, hopeless, awful. The image is awful. Headed, I fear, towards a most useless place where everyone is just waiting. Dr. Seuss goes on to say, no, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. No, you won't. You won't, you won't escape it. If you've lived any amount of time at all, you have already realized that we don't escape waiting. We find ourselves hurrying up in one area just to wait in another. We go from waiting to waiting and it's frustrating because we agree with Dr. Seuss, waiting is useless. But what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? What if waiting isn't staying? What if waiting is valuable? What if waiting is valuable? In fact, I bet you could name a couple of things that you like to wait for. I've gone on a couple of cruises and if you've ever been on a cruise, then you know that once you get on the cruise ship, there could be 45 minutes to several hours before the ship actually leaves the port. And you're not frustrated, you're not angry, you're not twiddling your thumbs because that's a kind of weight that you like. What if you give someone a a thought, a well thought out present or you're about to give some good news? That's a weight that you like because the waiting adds to the enjoyment of the thing. But what if the value of waiting had nothing to do with the enjoyment of the thing that you were waiting on? What if the value of waiting was more about what you did in the wait, and who you became as a result of the wait? What if instead of avoiding it, we began to embrace it? And I say that as a 39-year-old woman who has never been married. If you had asked me 15 years ago, Lynn, what will your life look like in the future? This is not the picture I would have painted for you. This is not what I would have said that my desired future was. And so over those years, there have been harder seasons than others. And in those seasons, people, well-meaning people who love me, have said, Lynn, you're just in a waiting room. And I thought, you're right, you're right, I'm just in a waiting room. And I would say that over and over to myself to comfort myself. And then one day I thought about it. And I thought about the image of a waiting room and I thought, what is a waiting room? A place where you just sit distracting yourself, numbing your mind until you get the thing that you want or you need. Life is not a waiting room. When we look at God's word, when we look at the men and the women who have gone before us, a picture in a Dr. Seuss book is not what we see. It's not, that is not how the people of God wait. And so today we're gonna take a look in the book of Habakkuk. And we're gonna see what it looks like as God's people to wait and to wait well. And as we begin to do that, I want you to think about an area of your life where you're waiting. What are you waiting for? What do you want? What is it that you need? And maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for a friend or a family member. You're watching them wait. You're feeling that pain with them. You're praying and encouraging them. I want you to have that in mind. And know going into it that at the end of this message, I can't guarantee you that your wait is gonna be shorter. And I can't guarantee you that your wait is gonna be easier. But I believe that God has a word for us on how we can wait well. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for your word. We just sit here and pause and invite you in. We say, let this day be yours. These are your words, not mine. Let me be less and you be more. Father God, we are expectant that you are gonna speak to us and that we are gonna respond to that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as we take a look at the book of Habakkuk, if you're following along in a Bible or in your Bible app, it is about five chapters from the end of the Old Testament. And Habakkuk is a prophet. And prophet is just a fancy way of saying he speaks the word of God. And when we meet Habakkuk, the nation of Israel, they're still living in Judah. They're still living in the land that God gave them, the promised land. They're still being ruled by their own kings. But that is about to come to an end. When we meet Habakkuk in chapter one, he's complaining to God. He's complaining that the nation as a whole has turned from God, they've gone their own way. He's complaining that there's a nation around them that's wicked and threatening them. And he's saying, God, where is the justice? And God responds to him. He says, justice is coming. I am raising up the Babylonians and they are gonna conquer the other nation and they're also gonna conquer you. And that is not the answer that Habakkuk wanted. That is not what he expected. The Babylonians were just as wicked as the the other nations around them. And he could not understand why a good and just God would use wicked people to bring about his judgment. How could that be? So he's looking around and things are not as he feels they should be. So he's waiting, he's waiting for justice, he's waiting for an explanation, he's waiting on God, he's waiting. And so as we move into chapter two of Habakkuk, we get a look at what it looks like to wait and how we can embrace waiting. And so that first line on your outline, you can embrace waiting when you wait with your eyes. Wait with your eyes. In Habakkuk chapter two, verse one, it says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So this image that Habakkuk gives us is of a watchtower or a rampart. And a watchtower or a rampart at this time is a high built up place that's either at the gate of a city or it's in a city wall. And it's where a watchman would stand. And so to understand what he's saying, we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to be a watchman? What is his job? The job of a watchman is to stand on a high place and to look out in one direction. So that means that the watchman for the north side of the city cannot simultaneously keep a good watch on the south side of the city because his eyes have to be fixed in a direction and he has to be able to see whatever is out there. He doesn't take a book or a magazine or his Netflix app up to his watch with him because he can't be distracted. If he's distracted, he's going to miss something. And no matter how bored or tired or frustrated he gets, he doesn't break his watch. He doesn't stop looking until it's over or until he sees something that demands a response. Physically, he is standing in the same place but mentally he's active. This picture that we get of waiting in Habakkuk 2, this picture is of expectation. This waiting is expectation. That's the second blank on your outline, expectation. And the thing about expectation, there's a readiness in it because whatever you see determines your response. And so Habakkuk, he stations himself in one place. He looks in one direction to God and he stays there until he sees what God is gonna say to him. Until he sees what God is gonna say to him because that is gonna determine his response. He's expectant to make a response on what he sees. But the thing about expectation is it can be misplaced. You can misplace your expectations. One thing that I'm starting to learn that the Lord is teaching me is I have to learn and I have to grow in expectation. So how do you do that? How do you grow in expectation? You grow in expectation through prayer and fasting. Through prayer and fasting. The more you do something, the better you get at it. The more you talk to God, the more you pause and are silent to listen. The more you respond to what you think you heard, the more you get it wrong, the more you get it right the more you go back to listen. That is how we grow in expectation, through talking to God, through fasting, through expectation. But I know that when some of you hear prayer and fasting, that sounds intimidating to you because maybe you've never prayed, you don't know how to pray, you don't understand fasting, what the purpose of it is, or maybe you fasted in the past, but you feel like you've done it out of duty and you feel like you've never done it well. Well, I wanna break all that intimidation. And I wanna tell you that at the start of every year as a church across all of our campus, thousands and thousands of people come together for 21 days of prayer and fasting. And we're gonna kick that off next week and you're gonna get more information about that. And during this time, during the month of January, we're gonna study the Lord's Prayer together. And so we're gonna give that to you. And I wanna encourage you, join your church family. We're gonna challenge you with the prayer that we give you every morning. The first thing you do is say that prayer. The last thing you do before you go to bed at night is say that prayer. If you do that, if you position yourself with expectation, I believe that you are gonna see God move. You are gonna hear His voice. So we embrace waiting when we wait with our eyes. The second blank on your outline is when you wait with your heart when you wait with your heart. In Habakkuk two, verse two and three, it says, the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Basically what the Lord is saying to Habakkuk here is everything's already been worked out. Though it doesn't look like it, though it seems reluctant to you, what I said will come to pass will come to pass when it's supposed to and how it's supposed to. Because your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways. so wait for my way. Long for my way. Long for my way. The wait here that the Lord is talking about to Habakkuk, this wait is a longing. This weight is a longing, that's the next blank on your outline. And longing is a yearning desire, a yearning desire. When you long for something, only that thing will satisfy you. But the danger in that is that when you long for something that never happens, that's hope deferred. And hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And so you're like, thanks Lynn, that's encouraging. I'm longing for something that hasn't come and I'm getting sick. Well, that has been the hardest part of my life right now, something that the Lord has taught me, that our longings are actually things that we choose. They're actually things that we have to grow in. We have to grow in longing, and how do we do that? We grow in longing through prioritizing and preparing. We grow in longing by prioritizing and preparing. Prioritizing simply means choosing the right things. What did the Lord say to Habakkuk? Write down the revelation. Make the revelation plain on tablets. Though the revelation linger, long for the revelation. Wait for the revelation. The revelation will certainly come. God didn't say the thing that you want is gonna come, Habakkuk. The thing that you want is gonna come the way that you want it, Habakkuk. He didn't say that, he said the revelation. What God is saying is that his word living and active in our lives is going to come and that's the thing that you long for. That's the thing that you wait for. In 2017, I started the foster care licensing process. And when I went through the process, it took about 10 months for me to become a licensed foster parent. And that is a whole nother sermon about waiting that we don't have time for today. And so during that 10 month process, there was just a lot of waiting. And after I became licensed, within a week, I had two kids in my home, a brother and a sister. And when they came into my home, I moved from one type of waiting into another. We were waiting for medical cards, one of them needed a medical procedure. We were waiting for permission to get that done. We waited for support services. We waited for court hearings. We waited to find out what happened at the court hearings. Wait after wait after wait. But the hardest wait of all was when I got noticed nine and a half months into it that they were gonna leave my home. Now I have to back up and tell you that when God called me to be a foster parent, he called me to be a foster parent which means temporary. He called me to stand in the gap for families for a short period of time while he redeemed and restored their situation. So kids leaving, that's the prayer. That is the goal, to see God move in their lives and to bring back and restore families. That is what I said yes to. But saying yes to it and walking through it are two very different things. And they're different because the way God equipped me for the calling was to bind my heart to those kids. He bound my heart to those kids. And so when they left, there was grief. My heart was broken. And day in and day out, I longed for them. I had a yearning desire to hold them, to see them, to see a picture of them, to hear their voices, to hear about them, anything anything that would ease the pain that I was going through, anything that would take the grief away. But it didn't come. And so my heart grew sick. Because hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And in that grief and in that sickness, the Lord started to teach me that I have to choose what I long for. What I need to long for is that he would bless and keep them and that his face would shine upon them, that he would command his angels about them, that the angel of the Lord would encamp around them and deliver them, that the word would be planted in their heart and would take root, that they would grow up to walk with him all the days of their life, not turning to the left or the right, that his peace that surpasses all understanding would guard their hearts and minds. The things that I prayed over them every night when I put those babies to bed, Those are the things that the Lord taught me to long for. Those are the things that I had to prioritize. And so as we grow, as we grow in longing, we have to prioritize the things that we long for. We also have to prepare. There's preparation involved. And preparation is simply the evidence of our longing. It's the evidence of our longing. How do we know that we longed for Christmas? Across all of our campuses, you saw Christmas decor. It may still be up at some of your campuses. And teams of Dream Team members and staff members worked for days, months, and weeks in advance, looking at campuses, seeing are they set up and tear down? Are they a permanent campus? How big is their space? What decor can we put in here that makes the most sense, that makes it feel like Christmas? When you walk into the breezeway, what music is gonna be playing before and after service so that it feels like Christmas? What worship songs are we gonna sing during the service so that it feels like Christmas? Our longing for Christmas was evidenced by our preparation for it. And it's the same thing with Habakkuk. How does the Lord tell him to prepare? He says, write it down, make it plain so the herald can run with it. Write it down and make it plain. When you write something down and put it in front of you, you are more likely to remember it. It is more likely to affect everyday things that you do. The decisions that you make day in and day out are gonna be influenced by what's right in front of you. And an example of this is in the book of Daniel. This is not on your outline and it's not gonna be on the screen, but as I was studying for this message, I can't, I, it brought to mind the book of Daniel. And shortly after Habakkuk wrote this, what God said came true. The Babylonians came and they conquered Judah. They took the Israelite people into captivity. And when they did that, they took the young men of noble birth or royal birth into service for the king of Babylon. And I see three instances in the book of Daniel, where I see that preparation caused them to long for the right things. Daniel himself, as he went into service for the king, they were commanded that they had to eat certain things and drink certain wines. And those things were against the covenant of God. And so he stood up and said, I want permission not to do this. And a little bit later, Daniel and a few of his friends refused to bow down and worship a statue of the king, even though it was the decree. And as a result of that, they were thrown into a fiery furnace, but the Lord saved them. And a little time after that, there was another decree that said you are not allowed to pray to or worship anyone except the king. And what did Daniel do? He did the same thing that he did every day three times a day. He went up to his room, he got on his knees, and he prayed to the Lord as God. And I thought, how were these men able to do that? How were they able to stand up to their captors? What gave them the courage when it would have been so easy to just assimilate to the culture that they had been taken into? And I realized that all of these men were living off the written word of Habakkuk. They were from noble families. They would have read Habakkuk's revelation. It would have been read to them. They would have known it and they had committed it to memory. They kept it in front of them day in and day out. They prioritized the Word of God. They would have told it to their children. They would have talked about it in their homes and when they walked along the road, when they rose and when they went to bed. Because the Word of God was in front of them every single day, all the decisions that they made came out of that. They were able to prioritize their longings and they were able to remain faithful to their longings because they prepared for it before it ever happened because they were seeking the Word of God and reciting the Word of God before they ever needed it. So if you want to embrace waiting, you have to wait with your eyes, wait with your heart, and the third blank there on the back of your outline is wait with your mouth. Wait with your mouth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. The beginning of the last book of Habakkuk. He's declaring with his mouth the goodness of God. What he has done gives him confidence for what he believes God will do. I also added that New Living Translation where he says, I have heard about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. Here's the interesting thing about the third and final book in Habakkuk or chapter in Habakkuk. This was written differently than the first two. If you're looking in your Bible or in your Bible app, you're gonna see a couple of italicized words throughout this chapter. And those italicized words are musical instruction. They're musical instruction. They're the same words that you see in the Psalm. This book wasn't written just to be read. It wasn't written just to be read aloud. It was written to be sung. Chapter three, Habakkuk wrote to be sung. In verse 16 he says, "'Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity "'to come on the nation invading us. "'Though the fig tree does not bud, "'and there are no grapes on the vine, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He wrote this to be sung. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Habakkuk decides to trust God. But he doesn't just decide to trust him, he decides to sing about his trust in God. And when he wrote this down, the instructions to anyone who would read this was that you were to sing these words. And so this type of waiting we see here, this type of waiting is rest. This waiting is rest. Why is it rest? Because you don't feel anxious when you're singing praises to God. How many of you have been singing and you don't feel fear? We sang a song just earlier today that said, and when we praise, fear flees. There can be no fear with praise. When you sing what God has done and when you declare what He's going to do, you don't feel anxiety, there is rest in this. Trust and praise is not about the absence of hard times. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Trust and praise is about knowing God is gonna lead you through them. But take heart, he has overcome the world. So we have to grow and rest, we want to grow and rest. How do we do that? The same way Habakkuk did it, by remembering and reciting. Remembering and reciting the faithfulness of God. When God is faithful and he moves in your life, write it down in the moment, don't wait. There are things that God has done in my life years before that I forget about. I'll go back and look at my journal and it'll, and it'll be fresh in my mind after I read it and I'll remember how pivotal that was in my life and how much it meant in that moment and how quickly our human brains will forget that. Write it down. And if you're like, Lynn, I can't think of a way that God has been faithful in my life recently. I'm gonna give you a way. He sent His only Son from heaven to walk as a human on this earth, to live a perfect life, to hang on a cross for you, to die, three days later to rise again, and to be seated right now at His right hand so that you and I can spend eternity with him, so that you and I can overcome the world because he overcame the world. If you can't think of a specific instance in your life today, that is enough. Write that down and recite it to yourself every single day. Recite that truth because it's gonna build your faith. You are gonna be able to rest in that. And don't just recite it, sing it. That's why worship leaders write songs so that we can sing the praises of God. That's what Habakkuk did. He didn't just declare God's faithfulness, he sang God's faithfulness. And why do we do that? Why is it important for us to remember and to hear it? Because faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. One of my favorite things about the book of Habakkuk is what his name means. It means embrace. His name means embrace. And when I was talking to a friend about this, she told me that she had the image of embrace as a long hug. Now I'm a hugger and she's not, and so I hug her anyway. (laughs) And have you ever had a friend who gave you the long hug where they're squeezing every bit of goodness out of that hug? Think about that in context to this book. What does that say? What is God saying to the people of Israel that he would send a prophet named the long hug? What is he saying to the people of Israel that he would send his judgment to be spoken by the long hug? Let that soak in. It wasn't good news that they got, but they got it from the long hug. What does that say about what he wants for us to know about waiting? How he wants us to respond to waiting? At the beginning of the service, I asked you to underline the words fear and useless in that Dr. Seuss excerpt. I want you to go back to that if you're taking notes. I want you to find the word fear that you underlined, and I want you to cross through it. And I want you to write trust. Now find the word useless and cross through it and write priceless. Headed, I trust, toward a most priceless place, the waiting place. Waiting is not easy and it doesn't always feel good. But Romans 8 says all around us, We observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. It's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us from within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than it diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged, in the waiting. We of course don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. When we wait with our eyes expectantly fixed on God, when we wait with our hearts longing for the things of God, when we wait with our mouths declaring the rest that we have in God, that is when we give weight the long hug, when we s- squeeze every bit of goodness out of it. And that is how waiting becomes the most priceless pr- place. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, enlarge us, enlarge us in our waiting. Lord, give us expectancy and longing and rest that only you can, only you can do that by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, let us be people that don't wait like our culture, but let us wait set apart and holy as your people. Lord, let us respond to your word in Jesus' name. Amen.